observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. What shall we say then that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. This is God's word. Thank you, Tracy. Um, <clears throat> just a reminder to you that uh, there is an outline uh, for the sermon on the back of the bulletin for those people who find those helpful. Um, and uh, we, we often, if possible, we take some questions at the end of the, the message uh, for clarification in case uh, there are questions you might have. So be aware of that. You can jot those questions down as we go along and perhaps uh, we'll have time for that. Uh, at the end of the message. Um, what we've been doing in the last little while is we've been actually, we've been camped out here in Romans chapter 3 because we are doing an extended investigation, so to speak, of the purpose of the cross of Jesus Christ. And what kind of precipitated that uh, idea was, was that I, in my conversations with people who, um, who are somewhat skeptical about the Christian faith, or not even that. Sometimes it's people who are new to the Christian faith and very young in the Christian faith and, and uh, don't understand uh, the, sort of everything about the Christian faith. Who does? But you know what I mean. Um, they, they wonder, why did Jesus have to die? Like, why was it necessary that blood was spilt? Especially a skeptic will tell you, you know, that's a barbaric, primitive practice, and I can't believe in the 21st century that you Christians are still... Uh, basing your life around that kind of weird stuff. Um, and for a new Christian, it's not so much that, obviously. For a new Christian, it's more, I don't get kind of all the things that it accomplished. So what we're trying to do is twofold. We're trying to help, uh, help all of us understand better and get a deeper and richer appreciation for the cross, but we're also hopefully uh, helping skeptical friends, if there's any among us, uh, to understand why it is so important, why this so-called barbaric event is actually not barbaric, this, this primitive bloodthirsty event. It's not that. It's actually astoundingly beautiful. And so we've spent a few, time, a few weeks now in, in chapter 3, and we've been talking about how Jesus' death was a ransom from sin, how it was a propitiation that turned away God's judgment and His anger, uh, how it accomplished our righteousness, all kinds of stuff. Today, we're, we're going to talk about something that maybe seems a little different. We're going to talk about boasting. In chapter 3 here, Paul is telling his, his listeners, he's saying, look, nobody can reach God's moral standard based upon their own moral righteousness. Their own moral record will never make them deserving of God's favor. 
It's absolutely impossible. It's only through the work of Jesus Christ that a person can be made right with God, be approved by God. And then so in verse 27 of the passage we just read, it says this, where then is boasting? It is excluded. Now here's the thing. Why does Paul all of a sudden introduce this idea of boasting? Well, it's because Paul is making a profound insight into human nature. It's actually quite remarkable. He is putting his finger on a deep, profound need that human beings have, which is also at the same time the source of many of the problems in our society, all summed up in this one word, boasting. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at boasting. We're going to try to understand um, that we have an intense need to boast, uh, that it is a huge problem, but it can be transformed. Those are sort of the three points. You can see them in the, in the outline there. The need to boast, the problem with boasting, and the healing of boasting. That's, that's the direction that we're going to go t- uh, together this morning. So here we go. The need for boasting. So like I said, Paul says, where then is boasting? What is boasting? I mean, another word that we might use for it is bragging, I suppose, right? Boasting, if you just look it up in the dictionary, basically uh, is described as an excessive pride in something. So in some achievement of yours or in some possession of yours or in some ability of yours. So your achievement, your possession, or your ability. Boasting is an excessive pride in something, essentially, about yourself. And so, you know, you, you go to any playground on a weekday morning and the kids are out there on the playground and there's a bunch of six-year-olds. Uh, usually this happens with boys. Uh, this, this, uh, girls aren't perfect, but boys are worse. We all know that. Uh, so boys... Boys are standing around, and uh, one boy says, you know, my dad's the strongest dad. And uh, one kid goes, yeah, well, so what? My dad's the richest dad. And then one of the other boys says, what are you guys? You guys don't know. My dad's the smartest dad. Now, there aren't many six-year-old boys that are really proud of their dad's intellect, to be honest with you. So this kid is the one who's going to get beat up at the end of this, uh, this little <laughs> illustration. But... The, the point is, is that, that what, are all these, what are all these boys doing? Are they just bragging about their fathers because they love their fathers? What I should be doing, it's Mother's Day, right? And I should be doing a whole boasting thing about moms, but um, I didn't. I don't know why. That was stupid. Whatever. Anyhow. Oh, that's really a big miss. Ah. <laughs> uh. Why are these kids boasting the way they're boasting? Well, it's because they're they're trying to build their own confidence. When we boast, what we're doing is is we're trying to to bolster ourselves. We're we're trying to strengthen ourselves. We're trying to, to, to boost our confidence in order to face the world. You know, in ancient times, this was a very common thing. Uh, let's say uh, there was an army that was... Actually, you have a perfect example of it in, in the story of Israel and, uh, and Philistine. They're going to go to war together, and what they do is... What the Philistines do is they send out Goliath, right? He's this monster of a, of a soldier, and he, he goes out there, and he beats his chest, and he takes his sword, and he rattles it against his, his uh, shield, and he says, who will fight me? 
Like, that's the VeggieTales version. But it's basically the, the, uh, pretty accurate. Who, who's going to fight me? Are you going to bring it? And then they send out Dave, and he's like, you're going to send a dog after a man. And he's boasting about how powerful they are. You, this is what ancient uh, uh, warriors would do. You know, some, some soldier would stand up in front of the rest of the army, and he'd say, you know, we're going to go to war with those guys, and by this time tomorrow, the river will run red with their blood, you know? Or, or they would promise future glory, right? So in Gladiator, one of my favorite movies, I reference it whenever I can. You know, at the very beginning of the movie, Maximus, he he's holds up his sword and he looks across the line at all his, his soldiers and he says, what we do in this life echoes in eternity and they all take off. And, and what, what are they doing? They're building their confidence to face the enemy. Now here's what kids learn very young, which is why they start to boast and why we all boast, even if we only do it quietly and in our hearts, and it's this. Life is hard. It's tough out there. It's a battle. And we often feel very, very small and very, very insecure. And so through boasting, we strengthen ourselves. You know, I I like to put these very erudite scholarly intellectual quotations on the front of the bulletin so that you all think I'm really smart. And I did that again this week. Um, Look at on the front, uh, Norm from Cheers. Uh, If you remember an old TV show called Cheers years ago, there was a character named Norm who always, whenever he walked into the pub, he had some pithy statement to make. And one day, somebody asked him when he walks in, how are you now, Mr. Peterson? And he says, well, it's a dog-eat-dog world out there and I'm wearing milk bone underwear. And that's kind of a funny little ha-ha kind of thing, but it's a sentiment that many of us feel, that life is tough, that it's really, really hard. I remember I was just at a conference this week, and I I was there with a pastor who grew up in Manhattan, and he's planting a church in the New York City area, and I said, "What's, what's New York like? What's it like to grow up in New York City, you know, Manhattan, the Big Apple? And he said, well, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of concrete, and there's a lot of energy. And then he said, and every day is a fight. Really? He says, oh, yeah. You fight traffic. You fight people. You fight colleagues. You fight smog. You fight everything. It's a fight. And so when we boast, what we're trying to do is we're trying to Meet that need that, that says, I need to feel safe, I need to, fe- need to feel confident, secure. I need to feel like I can handle life, and so we boast. Now, in our passage, in verse 27, when Paul says, where is boasting, it is, con- it is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but, that, but on, f- on that of faith. What he's, what he's referencing when he says, on what principle, on that of observing the law, is he's talking about how the Jews had been boasting, had been finding their sense of security and identity in the fact that they were the people who had the law. So the Jews, you go back to the Old Testament, they were given the law of God in the, in, uh, at Mount Sinai when they met with him. Moses came down from the, from the mountain and he gave them the law. And by their obedience to those, this law, by their keeping of this law, they had their sense of security and identity. They said, you know what, we're okay. We can face the world. We have God on our side. This is our righteousness. This is our strength. The problem was, was that it led to prejudice. And this is what 
boasting always does. We're moving to, to point two now, the problem with boasting. See, in verses 29 through 30, Paul says, is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. The background of this is obviously Romans chapter 2. And if you go back to Romans chapter 2, what you discover is that Paul was arguing that the Jews thought that they were in God's good graces, so to speak, um, because they were keeping the law and they were obeying it and they were doing what they should do and doing all the right things. And therefore, they thought that they were better than the Greeks. The Greeks were the pagans. The Greeks were the, were the non-Jews, people like most of us. I think most of us are not ethnic Jews, but uh, it was people like us who, who were pagans, who didn't believe, have the law and didn't follow the law, etc., and the Jews thought that they were better than the Greeks because their confidence was in their law-keeping. But what that means is, is that when you boast, when you, when you put your confidence in your achievements, in your possessions, or in your abilities, you are, you are bolstering yourself, you are strengthening yourself, you are girding yourself at the cost of somebody else. It's necessarily comparative, you see. Because you're saying, I have the law, they don't have the law. I am of the circumcised group, they're not of the circumcised group. Therefore, I am better than them. In other words, the danger, the problem with boasting is, is that it creates prejudice in the heart against other people. And I'm telling you, that's, that's the problem with the world. That's the problem with the world. That's the, the start of so many of the problems with the world. Let me put it that way. It's a little less extreme. Um, in our culture, we are increasingly living in what people call a, a very polarized culture. Some of you maybe have heard of the rise of what's called identity politics. And this is basically a sense of thinking that, that your group, and it doesn't have to be just an, an ethnic group, it could be a gender group, it could be a socio economic group, it could be whatever kind of group. Your group knows what's best for the world, knows what's best for society, and you identify yourself over against those who are outside of your group. And you necessarily have to demonize those who, who are opposed to you. So if you're on the left, and you think in more progressive social categories, uh, you will demonize and you will vilify people who are very conservative socially and on the right. This happens in very, very stark uh, terms south of us, right? When you see Republicans and Democrats and the battles they have, but it's, it's trickling into our culture as well. Not so much politically, although it's there to some degree, but definitely sociologically. When you go to university campuses and one speaker is going to speak about a certain subject from a certain perspective and, and whole groups of students, whether left or right, they begin to protest vehemently to shut down that person's opportunity to speak at all so that we're actually quenching or, or squelching the free exchange of ideas, that's exactly what's happening here. This is where racism starts. It's rooted in this identity uh, or this sense of boasting in your identity as being part of a certain group that others are not part of. And I know that that's, 
that's on a very broad and very sort of social scale kind of thing, but it happens in our personal lives all the time, all the time. What if you, what if you boast in your work ethic? You know, you, you take pride in the fact that, you know, you don't sleep in. You're up in the morning at the crack of dawn. You make hay while the sun shines. You're very responsible and disciplined, and, and you work hard for your paycheck, and, and that's extremely important to you. In fact, when you have a day where maybe you got caught watching too many kittens on a YouTube video or something, and, and, and uh, you're supposed to be working, you come home, you're feeling down about yourself. You're feeling low about yourself. You're hard on yourself. And, and the thing is, is that when, when that's so important to you, when you are so proud of your work ethic and your, your, your ability to get things done, and, and even when you're hard on yourself because you're not fulfilling those responsibilities the way you think you should, you will necessarily look on people who you think aren't like for 30 years and never tried to move his way up the, the ladder. What's wrong with him? What's that person? They can't hold a job. Why are they on social assistance still? They should pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And you won't say that in polite company because you're not stupid enough to admit like, what you really think in public, but that's what's going on underneath. So that when you hear stories of someone who's doing poorly, you will immediately begin to think about it through that grid. Well, this, you know, if they would just do this and they would just do that, then they wouldn't be in this situation, but they obviously don't want to do the things that I think they ought to do, so now they're, they're stuck in their situation. And you don't, you don't have any room for the nuances of the complexities of life. Okay. That's not your problem. Good. <laughs> what if you're wrapped up in, in having really well-behaved, well-rounded smart, successful kids? What if it's your identity is wrapped up in, in, in your kids sort of, sort of following the path to success that you've always wanted for them, and you have worked very, very hard to create the environment where they will flourish. So, you know, you took them to every extracurricular thing under the planet to give them a chance, uh, to give them a leg up, and you worked very, very hard at them uh, having the right friends that they were playing with and all that kind of stuff. If your identity is wrapped up in all of that, You'll look at the family with the crazy kids. You know, they run amok. You know, there's no discipline in that household. Those kids can do whatever they want. And you will look down on that family. You will look down on those parents. You will think, well, if they would just get their act together, like me. If your identity is in your church, we go to the right church. We've got the right mission. We're like, we do church the way church should be done. Now, over there, I never see anybody raise their hand. Or over there, everybody raises their hands. We do it, we do it the right way. You know, we're really, we're really concerned about the poor. And that's what the church should be really concerned about. Ah, no, no, no. We're really concerned about education. That's what the church really ought to be. You will necessarily look at all those churches that aren't doing things your way, and you'll be like, you know, they just don't got it together. You'll look down on them. We, we have to boast. We can't help but boast. See, that's the problem. We can't help but boast. 
and it leads to all kinds of prejudices. I mean, I, I gave you a few, uh, few of the ones that are my problems, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Uh, you can insert your problem. Hopefully now you've figured out how you're supposed to diagnose it. You can diagnose your own problems. But we all got this problem. What do we do about it? Well, thankfully the gospel is actually about transforming our boast. And in chapter 4, verse 3, Abraham says something so interesting. Or, sorry, Paul says something so interesting. He says, what does the scripture say? He goes back to Genesis. He says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Remember, righteousness is a reference to this record before God. God must have relationships with those who are righteous. Those who are holy, those who are like him. He cannot look on sin. He cannot, be, he cannot be in the presence of sin. And so because of our sin, there was a big chasm between us and God. And, and Jesus' righteousness bridges the gap so that we can have fellowship and have a relationship with God. So Abraham, Paul says, has this good record, this righteousness with God. How did he get it? Well, it was credited to him, Paul says. Now, that should be something that we understand. As modern, Western, 21st century people, we should understand credit. We live on credit. The, the, the banks are always trying to give us more credit, right? What's credit? It's being treated, when you don't have the money, it's being treated like you do, basically, right? It's being treated like you do have the money. And so, so Paul, if you, if you take that idea and, and apply it to this, what Paul is saying is that Abraham, even though he didn't have that record that made him deserving of God's love and kindness, he was treated as though he had that record. And the way he was treated was by faith. So if you go back to verse 27, on that of observing the law, no, but on that of faith. And if you keep reading in verse 28, it says, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Now, let me help you understand the reference that Paul is making here. He is talking about a very specific incident that happens in Genesis chapter 15. And I encourage you to read it sometime. It's a weird story, okay? Basically, it goes like this. God, when he decided to save the world, he decided to do it through a family. Jesus was going to come through a particular family. So he picked Abram just out of the blue. I mean, it's not out of the blue because it's God. But from our perspective, it looks like it's out of the blue. He had to pick somebody. He picked Abram. He said, Abram, I'm going to save the world through you. So I want you to go and live in this land. And I'm going to give you all kinds of descendants. And, and through you, the Savior of the world is going to come. Abraham says, okay, well, let's go. So he follows God all the way in this very long journey, all the way to this land. And as he arrives at the land, it's been a number of years now, and he discovers that he has no kids. I mean, I don't think he discovered it. He knew it. But he has no kids. And the problem was, was that he was supposed to have kids because that's how God was going to save the world. And so Abraham's now old, and he's like, I'm past childbearing age, and my wife's past childbearing age. So he gets up the guts to go up to God, and he says, you know, um, remember that covenant we made? A few chapters ago, uh, you were going to give me a family, and here we are. We're three, it's three chapters later. <laughs> That's how we think in terms of the Bible, right? By chapters, not time. Anyhow, it's three chapters later, and I still don't have any kids, and I don't have any land, and it looks like my servant is going to uh, inherit all my stuff. So what's going on? Are you 
going to make good on your promise or what? And God, because he is gracious and not like us, um, God responds basically with, look, Abraham, I, I really don't think I'm going to be the problem in this relationship, uh, keeping our, our promises. Um, me keeping my promise won't be the hard part. Here, come here with me. So he says, he says come here with me, and, and he kind of takes him out of the tent. It's at nighttime. He says, now look up. And you don't have any kids now, I know, but look at all those stars. There's billions and billions and billions of them. You're going to have as many children as there are stars in the, in the sky. And I think there was a twofold purpose to God taking Abraham out to look at the stars. One was, see how many kids you're going to have. The other was, you honestly think that if I can make that, helping you have a baby is going to be like a tough chore for me. And he says, trust me, this will come true. And in response to that, Abraham believed God, that promise, and that believing, that trusting, was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham found his strength not in his ability to produce a child so that he would have this, this covenant actually fulfilled, but he found his strength, his boast, in God's promise. It came from outside, and it came from faith. It had nothing to do with himself. So then what God does is, he says, I'm, I'm going to guarantee, I know you're, you're really having a hard time believing this, Abraham, so I'm going to guarantee it. And this is where the story gets strange. He puts Abram in a deep sleep, and, uh, or no, sorry, before he puts Abram in a deep sleep, he says, Abram, here's what I want you to do. Take all these animals, and I want you to cut them up, cut them in half, and then I want you to arrange them in such a way that you have one here and one there, one half here and one half there, and one half here and one half there, and, and blood, I want, I want you to put the sliced ends inwards so that the blood from the animals goes in between the, the two lines of animal carcasses. And Abram does all that, and you're all listening to this going, what on earth? Why would he do that? And it's because God was, was entering into another covenant, or he was ratifying his covenant with Abraham. And what that means is, is, is basically he was, he was making a contract with Abram. Today, we sign on the dotted line when we make contracts. What they did back then was, was they cut up animals, <laughs> okay? It's very, you know, try breaking that contract, you know? Because what you're saying is, is what you're going to do is, is you're going to together walk between the carcasses and the blood of the animals is going to get over your feet and sandals and all that kind of stuff. And what you're doing when you walk together through those carcasses is you're saying, look, if I don't keep my end of the bargain in this covenant relationship that we're entering into, may, may that happen to me. Not may you sue me in small claims court, but may I be killed. The weird thing about this story is, is that after he arranges everything the way God tells him to, Abram falls into, a, into kind of like a trance or deep sleep kind of thing, and he sees a vision. And the vision he sees is this smoking pot, and it shocks him, and it astounds him, because he didn't walk between those pieces. He just saw this smoking pot, and that smoking pot represented God. In other words, what God did was, when he put him to sleep, was God said, now watch, Abram, I am going to make this oath on my own blood. In other words, God said to Abram, I am so determined to bless you and take care of you, I will, even if it kills me, I will guarantee that this is going to come true. 
Now, when you fast forward centuries later, it actually happened. God had entered into this relationship with the human race and he had called us to obey him and to love him and to cherish him and because we failed and we broke it and we wandered away, we deserve to be ripped to shreds and have our blood poured out. But on the cross, when we didn't keep our end of the bargain, God kept it for us, you see, through the death of Jesus Christ. Now here's the thing, when that sinks into you, when you you look at the cross and you see that Jesus fulfilled your end of the bargain for you, when he didn't need to, when he didn't deserve to, when he took your place, it will heal you from that pride and it will transform your boasting. Oh, you'll still boast. You'll still have something to put your security in. You'll still have some achievement, some possession, some ability that you are celebrating and finding your strength of character in. But it won't be your own. It'll be His. You'll boast in Christ and His achievements and in His possessions and in His ability. But see, that means that when you look around you, at the parents that don't parent the way you, should, the way you think they should, or at the, the lazy guy who doesn't pursue his career the way they should, or at the churches that don't do church the way they should, you won't look at them and look down on them. Because any measure of success you have as a parent, or as a worker, businessman, or as a church person, you know is a gift of grace. And all you should be doing is receiving it with thanksgiving. See, you're free. You're free. You're free from the life of comparison. You're free from walking down the street or walking into the boardroom or walking into uh, your friend's house and constantly looking around and wondering if you measure up. Are you higher on the ladder or are you lower on the ladder? You're free. Um, in Lord of the Rings, which is uh, one of my favorite books, I'm actually going to take an, an illustration from the movie version, which is very close to the book version, so I'm, I'm allowed to do that. In, in the last movie, this character Gollum, he was, he was a person named Smeagol, and he got so corrupted by the ring that he became this character Gollum. But it's very interesting, in the last movie, in The Return of the King, he, he begins to make progress in, in reverting back to this character, Smeagol, rather than Gollum. And the key to his transformation is the kindness of Frodo, one of the hobbits. And there's this incredible scene when they're on their way into Mordor, and Sam and Frodo are sleeping somewhere in the rocks, and, and Smeagol Gollum is having this war within himself because he really wants to take that ring back and he wants to kill those rotten hobbits, but he also has seen their kindness towards him and, and, and their love towards him. And the, he has this, basically, this dialogue between him. And listen to this dialogue. So Gollum says, we wants it. We needs it. Must have the precious. They stole it from us. Sneaky little hobbitses. Wicked, tricksy, false. Smeagol says, no. Not master, referring to Frodo. Gollum says, yes, precious, false, they will cheat you, hurt you, lie. Smeagol says, master is our friend. 
You don't have any friends. Nobody likes us. I'm not listening. I'm not listening. So he just tries to, to, to tell Gollum to shut up. Gollum keeps going, you are a liar and a thief. No! Murderer. Pretty good, eh? <laughs> Go away! Go away! Gollum laughs. Go away! <laughs> and as Smeagol cries, he finally says, I hate you. I hate you. Where would you be without me? I saved us. It was me. We survived because of me. Now, just this is how it goes. This is how it goes. This is how the devil talks in your ear, okay? You tell him, get lost, and he says, where would you go? You, you're evil. The master doesn't want you. God doesn't want you. I saved us. I'm the one that's keeping us going. Oh, I could go on and on. But anyhow, I should go on with the, yeah. So Smeagol, but then Smeagol stops crying. And it dawns on him and he says, so after Gollum says, we survived because of me, he says, not anymore. What did you say? Master looks after us now. We don't need you anymore. What? Leave now and never come back. No. Leave now and never come back. And then Gollum is screaming in frustration. Leave now and never come back. And then it's dead silent. And Spiegel, he looks around. We told him to go away. And away he goes, precious. Gone, gone. Smeagol is free. That's it. That's it. You're free. So as the hymn says, I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Let's pray. Father, we are set free. Thanks be to God. Help us to boast only in Christ so that we would become loving, gracious, humble people towards those who aren't like us in every way. And may that love of Jesus, his, his welcoming kindness, may that spill over into who we are as we interact with those around us, especially with those around us who don't know our Savior because our desire is that they would find the freedom that we enjoy. In his name we pray, amen.